Don't we serve a good God? He deserves all the glory and all the worship and all the honor because he's good to us. He's been faithful to us. Do you know that in heaven right now, all the angels and the saints that are already there, they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And when we sing that, we're joining our voice with the chorus of heaven. Isn't it amazing what our God allows us to do? He allows us to participate in the worship of heaven. I don't know if you're thinking about that when you stand at church on Sunday. You might be thinking about what's gonna happen with my team today in that football game? What's gonna happen with my kids when we get home? Like, what do I gotta take care of today? But in this moment, you have an opportunity to bless the Lord. The Bible says, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. How many of you wanna do that with me right now? Come on, let's do it. God, we bless you and we thank you for your goodness. We worship you for your faithfulness. We thank you for Jesus who came and took the cross in our place. He paid the price for our sins and he defeated death and rose again so that we could experience victory and hope in Jesus. We know that as your sons and daughters, we experience the outpouring of your love through the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us. And so we're never alone. We thank you that you reign above. You are in control of every circumstance. No matter what happens around us, you go before us. So we have so much to thank you for. We have so much to praise you for. And we take this opportunity to bless your name. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come. Be exalted, God, by your people. Hear our worship and receive our sacrifice of praise. We lift you up today, Lord. You are good and we praise you. Thank you for what you've done. God is so good. Come on, give him praise, church. Amen, amen. Go ahead and grab your seats. I wanna welcome you in Mesa, online, Fountain Hills, South Mountain. We're all together today in multiple locations and we're worshiping the Lord. Uh, and we're also gonna study his word. Aren't you grateful for the word of God? And we're in the book of Exodus and we're gonna be talking about the plagues today. It's kind of an epic part of the Bible. And if you've read the Bible at all, you've probably read about the plagues. Maybe you haven't read about the plagues, but you've probably seen them depicted in a Hollywood feature film at one point or another. And so we're going to talk about them today. And it's a little bit of a different type of sermon. It's a little bit more of a teachy sermon. And so I've been praying this week that I wouldn't bore you with all the things I'm going to try to teach you, but rather that God would minister to you through his word and maybe help you to see something you haven't seen. What we were talking about last week is that a lot of times life gets harder before it gets better. And that's what happened with the Hebrew people. Moses showed up, said, good news, guys. God's going to lead us out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses went to Pharaoh and says, the Lord says, let my people go. And rather than experiencing freedom, they were oppressed. Pharaoh took away their straw that they had to make bricks with. And their situation got harder before it got better. There's actually a a depiction of slaves making bricks that was found in one of the viziers of Egypt who ruled over the slaves and their building process under Pharaoh during that time. And this depicts Nubian and Asiatic slaves, which is what the Egyptians called slaves from the land of Canaan. They called them Asiatics. Depicts them making bricks and forming them and drying them in the sun to build the cities of Pharaoh. And so here's Moses at the end of Exodus 5. He goes back to God and he basically says, what's up, God? Like, what are you doing letting us go through this? Why aren't you rescuing your people? Our situation didn't get better. It just got harder. And I'm glad the Bible records moments like that because I think you probably feel like that sometimes. I know I do. You know, you've got the promises of God and you know he has a plan for your life. And sometimes that plan leads you through a valley where life gets harder before it gets better. And in that moment, you find yourself crying out to God, like, what are you doing in my life? And why are you letting me go through this? I thought you were supposed to bless me. And this situation doesn't feel like a blessing. It feels like another burden. And so if you ever call out to God that way, you know you're not alone. If you ever feel doubt, you're not alone. If you ever ask God, what are you doing in my life? He's not insulted by that. He knows like little children, we sometimes cry, and yet he continues to love us and guide us. And so God responds to Moses. 
in Exodus 6, verse 1. The Lord told Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. I like where this is going. He says, when he feels the force of my strong hand, he will let the people go. In fact, he will force them to leave his land. Okay, so these plagues, they were not, here's what one uh, uh, professor says, an Egyptologist says, these plagues were not random punishments inflicted on by the Jewish God upon Egypt, but listen, a declaration of war on the entire Egyptian system. And I'm going to talk about that today. The Egyptians had many gods, and it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that fully because uh, as Christians, we're monotheistic. Most people in America tend to be monotheistic. We believe in one God who reigns above, and he exists in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but the Lord is one. And we hear about other cultures like Egyptian cultures or Hinduism where there are many gods. And we don't really grasp how that affected society. There were all kinds of gods and temples and different priests and priestesses and worship and sacrifices. And these gods impacted every part of society. And yet we know that God, Yahweh, as he reveals himself to Moses, is the God above all gods. And if you only take one thing away from this sermon today, I hope you'll take this away, the confidence to know our God is greater. Say it, our God is greater. greater. That's great. Our God is greater. He rules above all other gods. There is no one like him. He stands alone and he makes that clear. These plagues that we're gonna talk about demonstrate his power over the Egyptian false gods and Pharaoh who was viewed as a god by his people. Here's what God says in Exodus 10 verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, return to Pharaoh and make your demands again. I have made him and his officials stubborn so I can display my miraculous signs among them. It's kind of like a fighter who's beaten someone up, but he holds the guy up by the collar and just keeps punching him. You know, that's what God says. I'm making him stubborn so I can just keep punishing him. And maybe you hear about that and you think, that doesn't sound very fair to Pharaoh. To which I would reply, read Romans 9 and remember God can do whatever he wants to whoever he wants. And some people are like, I don't like that. And that's too bad. It doesn't matter what you like. And here's what God says. I've also done it so you can tell your children and grandchildren about how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and about the, the signs I displayed among them. And so you will know I am the Lord. Okay, so here you see God intentionally made a mockery of the Egyptians, their society, and their false gods. Uh, This is kind of different than the society we live in where we have this idea that we should respect all religions equally. And as Christians, we should love all people because people are made in the image of God. Amen? But that doesn't mean we should respect their false religions. Because false religions come from the pit of hell and lead people back to hell. Every time you see one of those coexist bumper stickers, you know, the devil loves those bumper stickers. Yeah, coexist. You can coexist all the way to the flames of hell. I see a coexist bumper sticker and I'm like, me and that person would not get along. I can guarantee you right now. They need Jesus is what they need. And so here's what we know. You read the Bible and it looks kind of different. It looks different. Whenever I talk about other religions, pretty much every time someone leaves the service mad, I don't like that. You shouldn't talk bad about other religions. To which I would respond, like, have, have you read the actual Bible? Have you read the Bible? Because here, here we, read, we read God wants to make a mockery of the Egyptians. Or there's this whole scene in 1 Kings 18 where the prophet of God, Elijah, squares off with the prophets of Baal and they have a showdown. And first the prophets of Baal cry out to their God, Baal, and he doesn't respond to them. And then Elijah just starts talking trash. It's recorded in the Bible. It says, noontime, Elijah began mocking them, the prophets of Baal. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed. For surely... Your God is a God. Perhaps he's daydreaming. That's why he's not listening to you. Or maybe he's relieving himself on the potty. Or maybe he's away on a trip and he just needs to be woken up from his nap. You know, he's like just talking trash to these guys. And there's a lot of Christians today that be like, I don't like that, Elijah. You need to be nice to those prophets of Baal. You know, like he ends up killing the prophets of Baal. So you just kind of think about it. Uh, our God 
all that he does, it leads us to this conclusion. In Psalm 86, it says, No pagan god is like you, O Lord. None can do what you do. So you have this confidence as a follower of Jesus and a child of God. Your God is greater. Your God stands alone. Your God is the creator over everything. There are many gods in this world, but they are false gods. There's only one true God. The Lord is one. There is no one like him. Now, when it comes to Exodus, there are a lot of skeptics and critics uh, liberal scholars who will attack uh, the archaeological trustworthiness of this account, the historical veracity of this account, and they'll say that there's no evidence that any of this happened. If this large group of people lived in Egypt and left Egypt, there would be so much archaeological evidence, and we don't have that, and it's all made up, and this wasn't even written until thousands of years later, and that's not true. One, there is archaeological evidence. Two, we have to keep in mind the limits of archaeology. Uh, first, um, this took place 3,500 years ago. So it makes sense that it's hard to find the archaeological evidence uh, that would support the narrative in Exodus. But further, the amount of discoveries that have happened in this area, uh, this region of the world they have only uncovered less than 2% by one estimate of the archeology span that there is to be discovered. And so we, we have a lot of cool insight and evidence, but I, I think there's actually gonna be a lot more discovered if the opportunity is there and Jesus doesn't return first. So that's what's happened throughout history. More time goes on and they discover more stuff and they go, oh, that's really cool. We didn't know that, that it was real. We thought it was all made up. They, they find the evidence that it was actually what the Bible said it was true is what was true. Uh, so that keeps, to, that keeps happening. But there are really cool things that I think can build your faith in the word of God. Oh, like here's one. The Papyrus Brooklyn is an ancient document that dates back to the time of Joseph. And this document records all the names of slaves in one Egyptian household. And it contains Hebrew named slaves. Why did slaves have Hebrew names? Unless they were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob living in the land, just like the Bible says they did. Then further, there are skeptics who will say Moses couldn't have written the Old Testament books. that We call them the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, it couldn't have been written because there was no Hebrew alphabet that would have allowed for that at the time. It must have been written much later. And then in the 20th century, they discovered there was a proto-Sinaitic script, an ancient alphabetic script that Moses could have used to write the Old Testament books. They found evidence of that alphabetic script. Uh, then it's interesting when you read the first five books of the Old Testament, which we believe were written by Moses because the Bible says they were written by Moses. It contains Egyptian words in the middle of this Hebrew scripture. Like the, the word Nile, the Nile River, it's not the normal Hebrew word for river. It's the transliteration of the Egyptian symbol for river. And there are multiple words like that that are Egyptian in their etymology. And you have to ask, why would the Hebrew scriptures be written with Egyptian words? It makes sense because Moses was raised and educated by the Egyptians. Here's another cool thing. The city of Avaris was uncovered not long ago. It was buried underneath another city called Ramses. And this city was originally set, settled, the city of Avaris, in the 19th century BC, which was the time of Joseph. And excavators say it was settled by a group of non-Egyptians from Canaan. And Canaan, as you know, is the land that God gave Abraham and his descendants. And there's Canaanite proper, uh, pottery and weapons that they use found in this city, as well as, listen, a prominent tomb of a Semitic man with a multicolored robe. And archaeologists believe that Joseph lived in this city and his sons built a, a mansion on top of the area where he was buried. And then the excavators note, suddenly and mysteriously, the people evacuated the land during the reign of Amenhotep II, which was the likely pharaoh during the time of Moses. They su suggest that maybe plague struck the land and that's why the people left. I don't know. Maybe that's what happened. Speaking of Amenhotep II, he was likely the pharaoh during the time of the Exodus as he was reigning in 1446 BC when the Israelites left 
Egypt. And it's interesting. If you know the plagues, the 10th plague, God struck down the firstborn. And we're going to talk about that plague next week as well as the Passover. But Amenhotep II, um, it's interesting that he was not the firstborn son of his predecessor. Further, his successor, the Pharaoh that came after him, was not his firstborn son. So it lines up with the biblical narrative and how God killed the firstborn of the Egyptians. It's also interesting with Amenhotep II, his first military uh, exhibition, he went out and he captured 2,214 slaves and brought them back to Egypt. Later, his last military campaign in the ninth year of his reign, right around 1446 BC, when we believe the Hebrews left Egypt, he went on his last military campaign, and in this campaign, he brought back a massive amount of slaves. He brought back 101,128 slaves, which was way more than normal. Uh, and one plausible explanation for this campaign and the dramatic number of captives is that he was trying to replace the slave labor that just left the land of Egypt. It's interesting that right after this, the dynasty of Egypt started to decline dramatically. And so there's a lot of archaeological evidence that corroborates the biblical narrative. When it comes to the plagues, you might wonder, why are there not more records of the plagues? Why aren't there more images and hieroglyphics with the plagues being so epic? You would think there'd be all kinds of monuments and, and paintings and tombs and things that talk about the plagues. Well, one um, archaeologist says this, one would not expect to find Egyptian inscriptions directly referencing the plagues of the Exodus as royal inscriptions never included negative reports about the Pharaoh and his armies. Okay, so that makes sense, right? If you're this powerful nation and the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, sends this guy Moses in and he's like, let my people go. And you're all, no. And then that God smokes you. He kills your army. He destroys the people. Pharaoh dies. Pharaoh's firstborn son dies. Everyone in Egypt, like the land is destroyed. So imagine you're like an artist in Egypt. You're a historian in Egypt. And you come into the throne room of the new Pharaoh and you're like, hey, Pharaoh. Uh, I was thinking maybe I should make a monument about how Yahweh smoked your dad and older brother and destroyed our land. You're like, should I paint a cool hieroglyphic about that? How do you think that would go over? It'd be like off with that guy's head, you know? So of course there aren't more records of it, but there are some records. There's one ancient manuscript called the Ipawur Papyrus. And it has a very interesting description of chaos in Egypt translated by an Egyptologist that says, plague is throughout the land, blood is everywhere, the river is blood, and the hail smote every herd of the field. The land is without light, and there is a thick darkness throughout the land. The Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the prison. So it's very interesting. As you read the Bible, you're going to find it just tells us stuff. And you have to, sometimes you have to believe it by faith. But then as time goes on, science and archaeology and history just continues to confirm what God already said in his word. And just builds your faith more and more. Like I already believe by faith, but now I don't even need that much faith to believe God's word. As you read the Bible, you're going to see a lot of cool patterns in scripture that demonstrate a divine order to the unfolding of events. So this is interesting. You probably haven't noticed this, but the first nine plagues are divided into three groups of three. Three groups of three. The first, fourth, and seventh plague, the plagues of blood, insects, and hail, in those plagues, Moses was instructed to go in the morning and station himself where Pharaoh would come, and he warned Pharaoh in that situation. Then there were the second, fifth, and eighth plagues, the plagues of frogs, pestilence, and locusts. In those plagues, Moses is instructed to go to the palace where Pharaoh is and confront him there. And each of these plagues is executed by Aaron, the brother of Moses. 
Then there are the third, sixth, and ninth plagues of lice, boils, and darkness. Those plagues strike without any warning. So it's just interesting that there's a pattern there. It's not random. It's almost like God knew what he was doing. Okay, so let's talk about these plagues. We're going to go through them briefly. And so first is the plague of blood. The plague of blood, you see in Exodus 7, verse 19, the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff and raise your hand over the waters of Egypt, all its rivers, canals, ponds, and all the reservoirs. Turn all the water to blood. Everywhere in Egypt, the water will turn to blood, even the water stored in wooden bowls and stone pots. So this was a likely assault on the Egyptian god of the Nile, Hapi. He was considered the father of the gods, and his role was to prevent hunger and starvation uh, from entering the land of Egypt. Flooding of the Nile each year was seen as the coming of this god, Hapi, to the land. But then our god, Yahweh, comes along and turns their source of life, the Nile River, into a source of death. Left the people thirsty and scared. You can imagine us living in Arizona. You know, if our canals and rivers and water all turned to blood, it'd be a really bad day, wouldn't it? It'd be a really bad day. Uh, one commentary says this. There were many gods around the Nile. Uh, and it says this. The Egyptian god Num was said to be the guardian of the Nile. And this plague showed he was unable to protect his territory. The god Hapi was said to be the spirit of the Nile and was brought low by this plague. The great god Osiris was thought to have the Nile as his bloodstream. In this plague, he truly bled. The Nile itself was worshipped as a god. And there are even hymns and songs recorded that were sung to the Nile as a god. And yet here comes our god, Yahweh, turns the river into blood. And he shows that he can bring life and he can bring death. This was a fitting retribution for the atrocity committed by Pharaoh, where Pharaoh had the Hebrew baby boys thrown into the Nile. They died in the Nile. They were eaten by crocodiles in the Nile. You can imagine there was blood in the Nile when that happened. Now God comes along and says, I'm going to turn the whole thing into blood. It reminds me of how scripture says, your sins will find you out. Your sins will chase you down. And that's what happened for Pharaoh. And it's an encouragement for us that sometimes you face injustice in life and it goes unpunished, but eventually all evildoers will face justice. Next is the plague of frogs. In Exodus 8, this is what it says. If you refuse to let them go to Pharaoh, I will send a plague of frogs across your entire land. The Nile River will swarm with frogs. They'll come out of the river and into your palace, uh, even into your bedroom and onto your bed. They will enter the house, houses of your officials and of your people. They'll even jump into your ovens and your kneading bowls. Frogs will jump on you, your people, and all your officials. And the Lord did just what Moses had predicted. The frogs in the houses, courtyards, and all the fields died. And the Egyptians piled them into great heaps. And a terrible stench filled the lands. It's gross, right? Could you imagine frogs just jumping everywhere? And then there's piles of, like, what is that? That was frog, frog, dead frog. You know those frogs are everywhere. It's gross. And this was warfare against likely the Egyptian god, the goddess of fertility and childbirth, Hecate. Is what was her name. Uh, and this was interesting. She was a, depicted as a woman, a woman's body with the frog of a head. I know some guys are like, you know, my wife, she's not the prettiest, but she doesn't have a frog head, so you have a lot to be grateful for. This goddess had a frog head, and frogs would come with the flooding of the, the Nile each year, so they were associated with new birth. Uh, in the Egyptian culture, frogs were considered sacred, which just shows you how silly false religion is. You end up believing all kinds of silly things, like frogs being sacred. Okay, and so God brought all these sacred frogs flooding in uh, across the land. And then there's just piles of stinking dead frogs everywhere. And this plague really served to mock Pharaoh in a special kind of way. All of his officials, Pharaoh himself, their houses were filled with frogs. It reminds me of what Jesus said. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. If you exalt yourself, God will bring you low. And it's easy for him to bring you low. And that's what he did with Pharaoh. Pharaoh was respected and feared throughout the land. And people even thought of Pharaoh as a god. And there are some people in this world, billionaires and wealthy politicians, powerful people, they are almost like gods in some ways. They can almost do whatever they want, but they don't compare to the God, the God above all gods. So here's God. He brings frogs into the household of Pharaoh, frogs all over the place to mock 
Pharaoh. So think about at one point the Hebrews, they lived in fear of Pharaoh. Now, 3,500 years later, there is still, there's a song that Jewish children sing at Passover, making fun of Pharaoh. It's called the frog song. It goes, one morning when Pharaoh awoke in his bed, there were frogs in his bed and frogs on his head, frogs on his nose and frogs on his toes. Frogs here, frogs there, frogs were jumping everywhere. Yeah. Think about how Pharaoh mocked God. Who is the Lord that I should listen to him? But God will not be mocked. God will... Bring frogs in your bed. <laughs> so here at the end of this plague, Pharaoh pleads with Moses to pray to Yahweh on his behalf. So he recognizes Yahweh as a God and he asks for prayer. It reminds me how, how sometimes sinners who don't believe in Jesus will ask you to pray for them. Have you ever had that experience? I have that experience. Like they don't believe in Jesus. They don't serve God, but they'll be like, pray for me. If you can like throw up a prayer to your God. Maybe he'll help me out. I'm like, it doesn't work like that. It's not, it's not enough just to have somebody else praying for you. You have to actually believe in Jesus yourself to be saved and experience the goodness of God. It's not enough that your wife prays for you. It's not enough that your mama prays for you. You've got to have your own relationship with God. There are a lot of people that want God's help, but they don't want to live according to God's word. They don't want to follow in his ways. They want his blessing, but they don't want to submit. It just, it's not the way it works. Then third comes the plague of dust and gnats. Some translations will say lice, but gnats is probably more accurate. It says in Exodus 8, when Aaron raised his hand and struck the ground with his staff, gnats infested the entire land, covering the Egyptians and their animals. All the dust in the land of Egypt turned into gnats. Pharaoh's magicians tried to do the same thing with their secret arts, but this time they failed. And the gnats covered everyone, people and animals alike. This is the finger of God, the magicians exclaimed to Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's heart remained hard. He wouldn't listen to them, just as the Lord had predicted. So this was really a plague against the earth. The dust of the earth turned into gnats. And there were Egyptians, they had a god of the earth. They called him Geb was depicted as a man often laying across the ground like that or as a goose. And he had authority over the earth and the tombs of the earth and the dead that dwelled among the tombs. And it was the soil that this plague originated from. When Aaron struck, struck the earth, the dust became like gnats and covered man and beast alike. And that was interesting because as the animals became infested by gnats, uh, it would have interrupted the sacrificial worship system of the Egyptians. They wouldn't have been able to offer infested animals as sacrifices to their false gods. Uh, again, the Egyptian officials recognized this is the finger of God. But you got to know, it's not enough to just recognize God's power. You've also got to accept him as your Lord, right? And, and so that's true. You got to submit to his authority. Then come more bugs, the plague of flies and insects. In Exodus 8, the Lord says, let my people go so they can worship me. If you refuse, then I will send swarms of flies on you, your officials, your people, and all the houses. The Egyptian homes will be filled with flies, and the ground will be covered with them. But this time I will spare the region of Goshen where my people live. No flies will be found there. Then you will know that I am the Lord and that I am present even in the heart of the land. I will make a clear distinction between my people and your people. So this was likely an attack on the Egyptian god Kepri. He was the insect god. They had a god of insects. And he was depicted with the head of a scarab beetle. He was considered to be the god of the sun. And they saw a, a scarab beetle. You know how beetles will push dung balls along the ground? Uh, and so they saw the sun going across the sky, and it reminded them of that. So they figured that Kepri must have a beetle's head, and he must be responsible for taking the sun across the sky. And, and so th th that's what they thought. But God comes along, and he's like, okay, you like uh, bugs? I got your bugs. I got you bugs. All the bugs you want. Bugs for days. Uh, and so this one, all insects flood the land, flies cover everything. And 
this, this triggers some PTSD for me. I don't know. Like in our neighborhood, sometimes we'll go walking. And have you ever walked through a swarm of gnats? And you're almost like, well, I just, I just got some in my, I think I just breathed a gnat in. Could you imagine having like gnats cover everything? Could you imagine having the whole land covered by flies, just like flies on your food and on your face and like crawling on your eyeball and getting in your mouth? And it's nasty, isn't it? It just highlights like when you live in sin, sin can be pleasing for a season, but it ultimately leads to nastiness and corruption and a lack of peace. I don't know what's going on in Arizona these last couple of years, but when I was growing up here, we never had mosquitoes. What is up with this lately? Every time it ra- rains, there's like mosquitoes now. I don't know who brought the mosquitoes to Arizona. Like, were they trying to flee California too? I don't know. Then fifth, there's the plague of the livestock. In Exodus 9, it says, The hand of the Lord will strike all your livestock, your horses, donkeys, camels, cattle, sheep, and goats, oh my, with a deadly plague. But the Lord will again make a distinction between the livestock of the Israelites and that of the Egyptians. Not a single one of Israel's animals will die. So... God strikes down the livestock, and the Egyptians had a goddess depicted as a cow named Hathor. She was known as the great one of many names and was an important part of Egyptian life, part of life and death in the Egyptian culture, and god of livestock. And for ancient people, livestock, that was basically the source of their food, their economy and industry. And so this plague is really an attack on the Egyptian economy. God says, okay, I see your God of many names and I raise you one. I got the name above all names and I can strike down your mode of transportation, your camels and horses. I can strike down your source of meat and milk and wool for clothes. And I can bring your economy to a screeching halt. God is our provider, isn't he? He's the one who gives, but he can also take away. He can bring blessing and he can bring cursing, which is why I think as Christians, it's so important for us to manage our household under the blessing of God. And that can only happen when God is first in your finances. If God's not first in your finances, you're not going to experience God's blessing. You're going to be left out in the cold experiencing the curse of sin as it corrupts your finances. It's just a reality of life. And yet here we see again with the last plague and this one that God protects his people from these plagues. The first couple plagues affected his people. With these last two, he said, I'm going to set my people apart. I'm going to show my ability to punish evildoers and preserve my own people in the midst of that at the same time. And that's really comforting for us as Christians because you can be in a world where there's hardship and chaos all around you. But if you know Jesus Christ, the truth and the grace we experience through Jesus Christ allows us to have peace and hope in the midst of a storm. And God does protect his people even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Sometimes he protects you from fear that grips other people and consumes their life. But he can shelter you from that because you know him and you dwell in him in those times. And so God is good that way to his own people. Next comes the plague of festering boils. It sounds awesome. In Exodus 9.10, it says, As Pharaoh watched, Moses threw the soot into the air and boils broke out on the people and animals alike. Even the magicians were unable to stand before Moses because the boils had broken out on them and all the Egyptians. So this was an attack on the health, the physical health of the Egyptians. And it was war declared on the Egyptian god of medicine, Emotep. Emotep ironically developed the idea that disease was natural and not a curse that came from the gods. It's ironic because now there is a disease that came as a curse from Yahweh, the God above all gods. And Emotep was originally a man uh, who was a commoner among the Egyptians, and he became a physician and later was deified by the Egyptians as a god. Which is interesting because that's really how all false 
religions work. It's basically showing men how they can become like God. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Religion that says this is how you can become a God, maybe even a God of your own planet that you can populate for all eternity. I don't know. I heard something about that somewhere once. How different is that than what the Bible teaches here? Jesus, the son of God, is God, and he left heaven, became like a commoner among men to heal us from sickness and disease, which stems from sin. Death stems from sin. And that's encouragement to us that although in this life we still sometimes suffer under the curse of sin and we feel its effects with sickness, disease, and death and disappointment, we know that through Jesus we experience healing. Sometimes in this life we experience supernatural healing, but all of us will experience supernatural healing in heaven. You'll have a new glorified body that doesn't get sick, doesn't lose its hair or gain too much weight doesn't need a knee replacement, doesn't have to worry about viruses anymore. Doesn't that sound awesome to know that in heaven you won't have to worry about that? Aren't you grateful for the great physician, Jesus? Then came the plague of hail. In Exodus 9, Moses lifted his staff toward the sky and the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning, which flashed towards the earth. The Lord sent a tremendous hailstorm against all the land of Egypt. Never in all the history of Egypt had there been a storm like that with such devastating hail and continuous lightning. It left all of Egypt in ruins. The hail struck down everything in the open field, people, animals, and plants alike. Even the trees were destroyed. The only place without hail, again, was the region of Goshen where the people of Israel lived. So the Egyptian goddess of the sky, Newt, was being attacked here through this plague of hail. Her symbol was a wooden ladder, and she was thought to help the Egyptians ascend to heaven. And yet here, hail starts falling from the sky and killing the people, anyone that was out in the open. And the first six plagues, I think, were weird, and some of them were kind of freaky, but... If I was an Egyptian and I was experiencing this plague of hail, now I'm, now I'm scared, okay? Continuous lightning striking the ground and giant hail balls falling out of the sky, which probably wasn't super normal in Egypt. I'm scared now. I'm like, what did we do? And I think the Egyptians had a similar reaction. God shows that he is greater than all other gods. Uh, Newt is this Egyptian goddess with the wings, thought to protect the Egyptians and reign over the sky. Yet here's our God, Yahweh. He sends death raining from the sky. He says, you cannot stand against, we, against me. And he protects again his people from this punishment at the same time. And so th this was a, probably a really traumatic experience, as you can imagine, the Egyptians were starting to second guess some, some things at this point. And that was really each plague. You got, that's why I'm highlighting these Egyptian gods. Because I wanted you to get a sense of how many gods there were in Egypt. And the people believed in all these different gods. And they put their trust in all these different gods. The gods of livestock and the sky and of insect and of childbirth and of the river. And they prayed to these gods and they sacrificed to these gods. But can you imagine with each plague, their confidence level being taken down another notch and another notch, and their faith was diminishing little by little as Yahweh proved, hey, your false gods cannot protect you from my punishment. I am Lord of all. I'm greater. And so in verse 27, this is what we read. Then Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron, and, and now he has a little bit of second thoughts, I think. This time I have sinned, he confessed. The Lord is the righteous one, and my people and I are wrong. Please beg the Lord to end this terrifying thunder and hail. We've had enough. I will let you go. You don't need to stay any longer. It sounds like he's about to ask Yahweh into his heart, right? He's like, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm wrong. It's, it's funny. He says, this time I have sinned. It's like, it's a partial repentance. It's not, he doesn't, what about all the other times? You just think just this one time? What about all the other, what about that time you murdered all the Hebrew babies? Like, I don't know. So here we see in this biblical account, there's a lot of back and forth between Pharaoh and Moses. And Moses 
will say, let my people go. And Pharaoh will say, no. And then there's plagues. Moses says, let my people go. And then Pharaoh says, well, maybe. And then there's more plagues. And then Pharaoh says, okay, fine, you can go. But then he changes his mind. Wait, no, no, you can't go. And then there's more plagues. Okay, fine, yeah, you should go. No, maybe you better not, actually. I like all the free slave labor. And then there's more plagues. It shows how his heart was hardened and he was not willing to recognize the futility of standing against Yahweh. Then comes eight, the plague of locusts. In Exodus 10, it says, locusts swarmed over the whole land of Egypt, settling in dense swarms from one end of the country to the other. It was the worst locust plague in Egyptian history, and there's never been another one like it. For the locusts covered the whole country and darkened the land. They devoured every plant in the fields and all the fruit on the trees that had survived the hailstorm. Not a single leaf was left on the trees and plants throughout the land of Egypt. Okay, so this is... Amazing. This was an attack on the Egyptian god Set. He was the god of storms, the god of disorder and violence. He's seen here with a spear. Uh, He was considered the instigator of confusion and called the destroyer. He was thought to be the protector of crops. Ironic. Here comes God, Yahweh. He says, okay, you're the protector of crops. I'm Yahweh. I'm going to take whatever shred of crops remained after that hailstorm. He comes and sows confusion among the people. And I think this is kind of funny. You know, maybe after all the hailstorm destroyed the fields and the cattle and whatever was outside, most of the trees and plants were destroyed by the the hail and the lightning. Then whatever fruit was left, whatever plants were left, whatever trees were left, a giant swarm of locusts comes and eats every last bit. And I think what God was doing was he was attacking any shred of false hope that might remain. Like the Egyptians thought, maybe we'll be okay after that crazy freaky hailstorm. Nope, here come a swarm of locusts. And it just highlights how crazy it is, how hopeless it is to trust in anything other than God. God can take away. He gives and he takes away. And so we we know that God preserves his people. And I think this, uh, this plague, it almost feels like he was adding insult to injury. And he said he would. He said he was going to mock Pharaoh and he was going to mock the Egyptian gods. And I read about these plagues and you know what I start thinking? I am so glad I'm on his side. Aren't you? That, that's, like, that's part of the takeaway for today. I'm so glad I'm on God's side. And then this is the last one we'll talk about today is the ninth plague, the plague of darkness. In Exodus 10, 21, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Lift your hand towards heaven, and the land of Egypt will be covered with a darkness so thick you can feel it. So Moses lifted his hand to the sky, and a deep darkness covered the entire land of Egypt for three days. During all that time, the people could not see each other, and no one moved. But there was light, as usual, where the people of Israel lived. So the Egyptians, they had a god of the sun and of light called Ra. He was considered the king of all deities and the father of all creation. He was the Egyptians' main guy. They called the sun Ra. And he was arguably the most important god in Egypt. And here comes Yahweh. And he says, nope. In Amos chapter 5, the Lord made the stars. He turns darkness into daylight and day into night. So this punishment, it highlighted the deceived state of the Egyptians. They not only took for granted the sun and the moon and the stars that Yahweh created and put in the sky for our benefit, but they didn't see their own spiritual darkness that they were living in with all their false gods. And how many of you know, before you put your faith in Jesus, you were walking in spiritual darkness. You were living in spiritual darkness. You were seeing, but not perceiving. You were hearing, but not understanding. Your mind and your eyes and your heart were clouded by the darkness of sin. And God, in this plague, he brought supernatural darkness. A lot of people will try to explain the plagues through natural phenomenon. And I I don't know if they have weak faith. They'll say, you know, this plague of darkness, maybe it was a solar eclipse. I don't think that was it at all. 
I think it was a supernatural, miraculous plague. And I think all of them were miraculous uh, plagues, most likely. And especially this one, this plague of darkness, so thick you could feel it. It says the people could not see each other for three days. I think even though they, they would try to light candles, this supernatural darkness would not allow the light of the candles to penetrate. Like, could, could you imagine the Egyptians calling out to each other in their household? Honey, where are you? I, I hear you, but I can't see you. They're stubbing their toe on stuff, like cursing an Egyptian. Ow, what's going on? You know, how crazy, how scary would it be to go three days and not be able to see another person, not be able to see your kids not be able to see your spouse. That was what the Egyptians faced because they rejected the God of Israel. Now think how scary it would be to not see another person for all eternity. Hell is called a place of outer darkness. Most likely in hell, people will not see another living being. They'll just hear their screams and cries of anguish but never have the comfort of fellowship again. That's truly scary, isn't it? And that's why it's so comforting to experience the light of life through Jesus. In fact, he says in John chapter eight, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Just like God still gave light to the Hebrew people in the land of Goshen, as Christians, we have the light of life through Jesus Christ that shines in the darkness in this world around us where people are confused and deceived. We have the light of life. The word of God is a lamp to our feet, the light of Jesus shining and illuminating and separating truth from lies. We can see through Jesus. We can walk through faith in God's word. I'm so grateful that we experience that through Jesus. Now, here's what I want you to see. In the account of the plagues, It starts with a sign and then there are plagues. Okay, so first Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh and they say, God says, let my people go. And he's like, well, who is the Lord? And so they give him a sign. And if you remember, they threw down a staff. It turned into a snake. There was like a battle royale with snakes. It was supernatural. And this sign was meant to prove to Pharaoh that their message was valid. Pharaoh didn't listen to their message. He didn't take the sign seriously. And what followed was he experienced the plagues and the punishment of God. It's the same thing that happens today. God gave us another sign. He gave us a messenger. Jesus came and he spoke the truth. He preached the gospel. He told people how to be right with God and how to be saved. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in his day, people were saying the same thing. Who are you to make these claims? And Jesus said, I'll show you. I'll give you a sign, the sign of Jonah. And Jesus was crucified on a cross. He paid the price for the sins that we would commit, the sins that people committed. Although he was innocent, he died in our place. He was punished in our place. And then he was buried in the tomb of a rich man. And he rose again three days later, just like he said he would. And he said, that will be your sign that what I'm saying is legit, that my message is true. I will die and I will rise again three days later. And then he did it. That's the sign that proves the gospel is true. And so people today, they have a choice. You can respond to that sign by receiving the message. You can receive the gospel and accept Jesus as your Lord and savior. You can be forgiven of sin, free from hell, adopted into God's family as a child of God and eternity will look amazing for you. Or you can reject the sign and experience the punishment for sin, separation from God and an eternity in hell. So you gotta make the right choice. You gotta make the right choice when it comes to what do you do with the sign, the resurrection of Jesus? Do you accept him or do you reject him? I think about this passage where the Hebrew people, they go through all this craziness in Egypt as God is delivering them and they had something better to look forward to, didn't they? They had something better than what they had experienced through the promises of God, the promised land was before them. 
And they would see God provide in all kinds of miraculous ways, even though they would go through a lot of hardship on their journey to this better place that God had set aside. Well, it's true for us today. You go through a lot of hardship in this life. And it's just reality. There's disappointment and sadness and pain and sickness and all kinds of, all kinds of stuff in this life that's hard. But there's encouragement for you that if you're a Christian, this world is as bad as it will ever get for you. And your future will be one of victory and glory and heaven and celebration. It's gonna be awesome. And I don't know if there's anyone at church today, maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're like, you know, I don't want to do any, I don't want anything to do with this. You, you don't want to take the sign seriously, I guess. Maybe you want to pay the price for your own sin. I'm not sure why, but you're like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't believe any of this. Archeology, span blah, 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 blah. No, no thanks. There are many ways to God. There are many religions in the world. If that's you, if you reject Jesus, this world is as good as it will ever get for you. And your future will be one of suffering and separation from God in hell. So make the right choice. Make the right choice when it comes to accepting or rejecting Jesus, whatever campus you're at. At the end of service today, when you leave, there's a table in the back where you can pray with someone, you can accept Jesus. But all these plagues and the battle that goes on between God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we know him as Yahweh, and the Egyptian gods, this epic battle and these plagues that just show God's power over the false gods of Egypt, they're a foreshadowing of a future greater battle that will take place. There's a day that will come where Jesus returns and all who stand against him will be destroyed. And he will prove once and for all that he stands alone and opposing him is fruitless. Here's what it says in Revelation 19. Jesus returns, it says, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast. Miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who worshiped his statue. Both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding the white horse. And the vultures all gorged themselves on the dead bodies. Amen. What a great servant. (laughs) I just love knowing that we're on the winning side. I love knowing that Jesus is our King and he reigns victorious. I love knowing that although God still allows sin to rule and reign in this world in some areas and there's suffering and there's sickness and there's evil, right? We know that in the end, justice will be served. Evil will be punished and all sin will be gone. It'll be a thing of the past. So we have so much to look forward to. We have so much to be grateful for. Our God is greater, our future is better, and we know that he's in control. I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet at all of our locations. God deserves some praise, doesn't he? After we talk about this epic battle that we win through faith in Jesus, we think about, man, all the victory that we experience through God. We gotta take a moment just to give him the praise and worship that he deserves. Come on, let's do that right now. God, we thank you, we worship you, we lift you up in this place. We give you all the glory and the honor because you are great. You are an overcomer. We are more than conquerors through you. We thank you that you go before us and you fight our battles in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.